Get the cheese to sit bay. The doctor should look at it as soon as possible. It is the way in which we propagate our species. Please demonstrate how this is accomplished. So, what's next? Hi, and welcome to Casual Trek, a Star Trek recap and ranking podcast. I'm Charlie Etheridge Nunn, a writer and a Legion of Superheroes fan. Hi, I'm Miles Reed Labato. I am a writer, and I am a unionizing Starbucks baristas fan. Hell yeah. So, in this podcast, every episode, we'll be watching stories from three different Star Trek shows or films, and we'll be ranking them on a big list of best to worst. We both love Star Trek, but it's far from our first fandom. So, in our opinion, that makes us the ultimate objective voices on such a task. Last episode, we ranked the first three live-action Star Trek pilots. This time, we've got three more to go through from Voyager, Enterprise, and Discovery. Are any of them going to be better than The Emissary? Are any of them going to be worse than Encounter at Farpoint? I have no idea, because I've not decided any of the rankings ahead of time, so we'll find out. Here's where the fun begins. Yes. Actually, last episode, we ran a little longer than I thought, as I figured, oh yeah, we'll do, you know, it'll be about an hour, that kind of thing. And uh, it really wasn't. Uh, even after editing. So well done, anyone who stuck through that first episode. While I am going to try and be a, a bit more succinct in this episode, I also have a tangent to go on before we begin. Uh, Miles, you are a fan of Star Trek, but slightly more a fan of other things, right? Correct. So what non-Star Trek thing have you been enjoying since we last spoke? Let's see. Okay, well, I have recently been reading some manga have you heard of spy family i've heard of it but little more than that yep spy family is a kind of a i would say it's kind of cold war era spy comedy about this spy who has to adopt a daughter to have her infiltrate a school so she can befriend the person who he's trying to get in close with the girl he adopts is actually telepathic but he doesn't know this so she knows straight away that he's a spy, and she's an adorable moppet who just wants to have a loving family. And then, due to no fault of his own, he ends up with a fake wife who is secretly an assassin. But neither he or his new wife know of the other's actual role, but the daughter does. It sounds like a recipe for hijinks. It's a recipe for hijinks, it's a lot of fun, and it's surprisingly adorable for a comic which has a lot of murder. Nice. One thing I've found, because I, I dip my toes in and out of manga occasionally. I loved Rumiko Takahashi's work, which shows just how old I am and <laughs> how old manga I like is. The thing I, that ended up putting me off quite a bit was uh, when they started translating Dragon Ball and Dragon Ball Z over here and I found out how many volumes there were. Is this a story that ends? Um, I don't know because it's actually, it's still currently being published in Japan. Oh, wow. You know, due to the internet and due to, like, the popularity of uh, manga over in the West, a lot of manga that's coming out you can tell you can tell I live in America because I'm saying manga and manga like are two different things. Just like the release dates 
for what's coming out. So like the new stuff like Demon Slayer and My Hero Academia are either nearly finished publication or have finished publication within a year of it still being released in the West. Wow. And honestly, given that like your average translated manga volume is about $10, I'm not sure how much that comes to in British money right now, but like given how much you're paying for the same amount from Western comics, it does end up being more value for money. Okay. I've never really been like a shonen manga fan, but stuff like Spy Family, Demon Slayer is very enjoyable. Nice. So what non-Star Trek thing have you been consuming this week? Just before this very call, I have been very much enjoying Taskmaster. This is a choice that should be no surprise because it's a very good show. But I somehow held out from bothering to learn what Taskmaster was for several years. Okay. I don't quite know how, and after a while of my friends talking online, it just became a matter of stubbornness, but I decided I wouldn't learn. And then during lockdown, I started watching videos, the Loading Ready Run Canadian comedy troupe slash online empire put together, which included a series of tasks which were Ask Master. And it was at that point, my partner was like, you realized, right, that this is Taskmaster. I was like, oh... Oh, okay. Right. Let's check it out. So we've been working our way backwards through the show, watching the hosts get progressively younger with each passing series, as if somehow Greg Davies was like uh, Merlin in that respect, like watching the wrinkles start to vanish and the hair get slightly tidier each time. And it's it's been a real joy of lateral thinking, frustration, and just human suffering. But, you know, what if Jigsaw made something that was kind of a little cosy and charming and fun? Isn't that essentially the Crystal Maze? Uh, there's definitely DNA between them. There's a lot less prancing, but not no prancing. I, I'm all about the prancing. Well, who isn't? So that's it from me. We probably ought to get on with the show, given we're almost 10 minutes through. We should casually make our way to doing talking about Star Trek in this casual Trek podcast. Yes, let's casually saunter over to the Delta Quadrant with Star Trek Voyager. Right. So I am now speaking to you from a week in the future because at, that, at the point of the recording ends, both Charlie and I fell into a Voyager-style phased tachyon emission and were warped a week into the future. Unfortunately, this means that we have to record a whole chunk of what we've already recorded. But after the Voyager recap, I fixed Charlie with a challenge that I would try and recap the pilot episode of Star Trek Enterprise in 10 minutes. I was eight minutes over. And then fail by eight minutes. But we decided that this is how we're going to try and recap the episodes to keep it precise, focused, and interruption-free. So, Charlie, I challenge you to recap the pilot episode of Star Trek Voyager with Season 1, Episode 1, Caretaker, in 10 minutes. I've been in that time warp for a week. I've forgotten everything about it. I... Okay. Okay, right. Um, I like this as two people that deviate from topics far too often and have an egg timer specifically <laughs> to help with any sidetracks. I'm going to do my best not to get on a tear about anything that isn't involved in the episode Caretaker. 
it's gonna be difficult. Got my alarm set. I'm giving you a three second lead in time. And then when I say go, you may go. Okay. Rather, I will not say go, but rather I will say engage. Nice. That's what they do on that Star Trek thing. Oh, have you engaged? Was Clock's that... ticking. Oh, shit. Okay. I've engaged. Right. So, <laughs> Voyager, Caretaker. Nine minutes um, 45, Charlie. Thanks. Thanks. Uh, we start with Chakotay, Tuvok, and Torres. Who are they? They're the Marquis, apparently. A bunch of rebel freedom fighter types who are continuing the Cardassian War even after a peace treaty. We find this out in a Star Wars-style title crawl because we kind of occasionally like to borrow from star wars the occasional bits and pieces here their pursuer they're not borrowing from star wars they're borrowing from flash gordon okay yes thank you good use of my time so they go on what looks like a suicide run into the badlands and their pursuer gullivec is destroyed in there that's good news the bad news is uh the marquis are eaten by a giant displacement wave. We get a title sequence, which frankly I prefer to DS9s, and we move over to Earth, I think, and a prison where there are still prisons. In the f Thanks. Oh, God, New Zealand. They turned it into a prison. There are worse places, I guess, to be imprisoned, especially for Tom Paris. Now, Tom Paris is Robert Duncan McNeil's character who isn't Nick Locarno in Next Generation, but he has a similar art. And this way, they don't pay the writer of that episode for the character. Captain Janeway shows up and, oh my God, a captain that's a woman. Amazing. She's got a, a mission uh, to go and chase down the Marquis because her head of security has infiltrated them. And Tom Paris is an ace pilot. Not just that, but he was a Marquis for about a week before being kicked out by Chakotay, his boss, who rightfully called him a poser a mercenary, just a piece of shit. Uh, the good news is, upon hearing his name, Tom Paris, he's in the mission. Oh yeah. Uh, we get our now mandatory reference to another Star Trek episode, as Deep Space Nine is where the lovely, sleek Voyager is docked in. And we get uh, Lieutenant Stardy, a Beatsoid who has none of Paris's like nonsense when he tries doing his best Riker-style flirting. But she tells him all about the gel packs and the smaller crew size and all of the technical specs of Voyager. Certainly, she will be around for some time. We get to meet Harry Kim, who gets fleeced by Quark. He almost navigates his way out of it and then right back in by Quark having a go at him for bringing up Ferengi stereotypes. Luckily, Paris interrupts and the two are BFFs. Uh, like, instantly, their chemistry is perfect best friends energy it is turk and jd from scrubs all over again but i guess these guys did it first over in voyager there are some doctors ignore them and we get to see some of janeway's personal life showing that she is a person as well as captain she's got a man and a dog and, and a woman hmm? she, that, that she's more than just a captain and a woman of course. Thank you. Thank you. This is Star Trek. Of course. Six minutes. Okay, great. So yeah, uh, we get some investment just in time to show that obviously we're going to hear more of these characters. And everyone is off into the Badlands on Voyager. It's all stormy, but in a very bad CG kind of way. 
and they get eaten by the same displacement wave. Suddenly it's a disaster movie. Oh no, everything's going awry. People are dead. The doctor and the nurse, apparently the only medical staff here, stood at one of those consoles that they pack full of explosives and are dead, leaving an emergency medical hologram who starts up and is immediately programmed for SAS, making him my favourite character in seconds. Voyager itself, once the dust settles, they are uh, 70,000 light years away. They're in front of some giant space array. It's all gone weird and they're all teleported to some kind of homely old American farm. The farm has some like rustic cowpoke farmy types offering cookies and lemonade and it's not at all suspicious starfleet have had several years of this exact kind of bullshit though so they go exploring they find out this is all some kind of hologram and the marquee who were there before are here having been abducted x-files style because that was popular at this point so now we've had we've had ufos in Encounter at Farpoint, and now we're getting our alien abductions. With all that shock, uh, oh my god, alien abduction happened. Voyager's crew are suddenly teleported back. The Marquis' crew are teleported to the, was it Valjean, the ship there? Yeah, the Valjean, it's a Les Mis reference. Yes, they're both missing a crew member though, Harry Kim and Belana Torres. So with this news, they team up, or at least they would team up if Chakotay didn't have his chief of security betray him immediately and reveal himself as Janeway's chief of security for Vulcan Tuvok, which raises a lot of questions about being a spy without lying at all. But I recently finished a role-playing game where my entire group was spies and none of them bought any skills involving lying. So it can, it can work. <laughs> From here, we suddenly pivot to... A planet called a camper with a race of people also called the Acampa because they have no imagination. They have kidnapped, but you know, for medicine, Bilana and Harry. They've had them teleported down from an entity called the Caretaker, who not only do they worship, but they are a hundred percent dependent on in their weird subterranean lair. He provides them energy, he provides them nutritious goo and demands that they look after these two. Apparently, there have been previous visitors doing this kind of thing. Over on Voyager, we meet... <sighs> we meet someone called Neelix. Uh, Neelix is like a raccoon, but with a far worse personality <laughs> and even less endearing traits. The He's scavenging through trash, and uh, the group bribe him with water, which apparently somehow, for a spacefaring area of the galaxy uh somehow water's extremely rare here apart from in the subterranean parts of a camper uh neelix has a bath scene which i really hope to scrub from my memory the moment that we're done talking about this episode and tuvok watches which again i'm sure he also wishes to uh to scrub that from the old memory banks as well yeah Neelux explains there's this group of people called the Kazon and the... Charlie, yep. one minute 30. Brilliant. One minute okay. 30. So yeah, he explains you're going to have to negotiate with the Kazon. They know where the Acampa are. The Acampa know, will know or have Harry Kim and Balana Torres. 
really, though, he wants his child bride, Kez, who the Kazon have kidnapped after she broke out of the Acampus stronghold. She is that worrying stereotype of aliens who are only, you know, like three or so years old, but look like an adult, almost like the reverse of that terrible JRPG and anime trope. They grow up real quick, luckily, so she at least appears like a human of about an age as a Neelix, and possibly the same brain levels, although it's hard to tell with both of them here. Uh, she helps the gang break in to a camper, which looks kind of like a 90s mall. We covered the 80s style one back in the uh, encounter at Farpoint. Now we've got slightly brighter. We've got some plant life. We've got some gardening going on. And Harry Kim and Bellana Torres are both done with the Acampa's nonsense and decide to break out just before the crew of Voyager beam down to rescue them, which is great timing. When all this is happening, it looks like the... Okay, I, yep. had, to stop, I had to stop you there. That is 10 minutes. I the, My only disappointment, you did it the good college try. I only wish that you had been a few seconds behind so that the alarm went off immediately after your words, perfect timing, because that oh, would have been amazing. It would have been amazing. Okay. I'm now going off to the stopwatch function on my yeah. phone. Oh, and God. we're going to see how long it takes to get the rest of the episode done and begin. Okay, brilliant. So, home stretch. Um, yeah, Harry Kim, Belana Torres doing their own self-rescue mission. Uh, they've found an access entrance, which frankly was not difficult at all. And it's got a far escape, I assume, at the, at the studio lot, where they clamber up until they get covered in some wreckage. Harry Kim foreshadows this by sounding entirely like the Douglas Ramsey of this operation. He knows he's doomed. We know he's doomed. Luckily, all of the others run up just in time to pry loose the styrofoam blocks that have fallen on them, get them back up and running, and they form a, a traditional uh, adventuring party lineup going through corridors of traps, of falling debris, all of that kind of thing. From that, they find their way out just about, but they leave a couple of them behind. Unfortunately, Tom Paris and Chakotay are back a bit and have to depend on each other to uh, to get out. At this point, Paris, having almost won me over by being a dull version of a Han Solo-ish rogue and, and getting on and protecting poor little Harry Kim, ends up getting a bit racist about Chakotay's heritage. He calls him an Indian. He asks him about shape-shifting animals. And Chakotay, for what it's worth, has a lot more patience than I feel he could have had with Tom Paris at least long enough for him to take it in his stride and leave. The rescue is all happening. Everything's great there. What about the fact there's 70,000 light years away? What about this weird array that the caretakers set up? Well, couple of issues with that. The Kazon, despite not having any water, can fly spaceships and fly in front of the array. Uh, Janeway beams onto it to find the old western style banjo playing old man from the holograms is actually the form of the caretaker who mentions he was a spacefaring cosmic entity arrived here messed up the planet and out of guilt uh stifled the acampa protecting them to a level where they couldn't not be dependent on him and now as he's dying he's been looking for people to breed with 
uh, to make a child who will then look after them for him. The only potential people out of both these crew are Belana Torres or Harry Kim. It's probably not the first time an ensign's been knocked up on his first day at Starfleet, but uh, yeah, uh, a close escape for Harry. The caretaker explains there's a Mrs. Caretaker who got pissed off with this mission, understandably, and left. So there is somewhere a Mrs. Caretaker who also has similar light year teleporting godlike powers. This one, he's done. He's used up. He turns into a weird blob and then shrinks down into a handy paperweight, which Janeway takes away. And I'm going to be watching future Voyager episodes in the desperate hope that we see a paperweight in her office, which is actually the caretaker. So good news is they don't have any moral qualms about blowing up the caretaker's array because he's dead. That looks threatening to Kazon, who sod off. And now we have two crews who merge, or at least by merge, the Marquis are quietly and politely absorbed into Starfleet uh, with a whole one ship, one crew, cautious <laughs> eyes, Kote, who, who falls in line here. Paris is made into an actual crew member. Chakotay is made into second in command. The Doctor, the hologram Doctor, uh, not the Doctor, the Doctor, is their only medic. So they're going to have to rely on a hologram from now on. And Neelix and Kess decide that they're going to impose themselves on the rest of the crew for what is apparently a 70 plus year journey home. Now, these are Starfleet people, so they're going to examine any cosmic MacGuffin, any anomaly. Hopefully one of them will jump them ahead a bit of time, but they're going to have some fun with science. And uh, yeah, that's that's it for Voyager. How much did I did I overrun by? Uh, you overran by four minutes and 55 seconds. Better than I thought. You did well. Um, I have one question for you. Go on. On the first day of any of your jobs, like Harry Kim, did someone try to breed with you? I mean, there was for comic shop time. It wasn't the first day, though, <laughs> so not quite. There were some disturbing <laughs> times in the storerooms there. Oh. I think, the, I think the close I've ever gotten was on the first day of um, uh, a brief three-week stint in McDonald's where I got fired for not turning up to my shifts. Um, I bumped into a customer, and he threatened to wait until I left the store, and he would kill me. Oh. Sort of the other end of the breeding spectrum, the kind of ending my life. Yeah, yeah, that's that's unpleasant. That is closer to the experience Harry Kim had here, admittedly. I, I've never had anyone try to breed with me. I once had a collection of teenage girls ask me for my phone number based purely on my accent. I told them my number was 911. Oh, good. Yes, the uh, the magic of the English accent in America. Ma the uh, magic of the English accent in America. I know no one would see it because like the, the video feed was... Um, is non-existent on the pot on this purely audio podcast but at a few points i was messing with charlie by my by waving my giant spider-man sum sum and make him do little wavy little wavy motions yeah yeah thank you thank you for that uh <laughs> i managed to knock corpse during the whole thing and i think i only babbled once or twice you babbled a lot during the neelix bath scene i mean like i knew it was going to cost me seconds but they needed to hear a disappointed sigh you ventured into lovecraft in madness and i think you lost three sanity points for this episode okay cool cool so 
yeah, opinions on this. As someone that's literally tried to boil it down into 10 minutes and got up to 14, there's both a lot and nothing happening in here. You know, it's it's definitely an episode of a, a what early mid nineties sci-fi show. Yeah, it, it's you know it you know at this point Star Trek doesn't need to kind of, you know this isn't Star Trek trying to reinvent itself like TNG or with Deep Space Nine. This is traditional Star Trek to replace TNG. It just really doesn't have a lot of TNGs kind of that my kind of big hot take on the next star trek next generation is that it's a 70 percent show where the actors are bumping it up to a good 95 percent show there's a, a level of gravitas that they have and to be honest even ds9 has that kind of yeah. i would watch all of you performing shakespeare in the park you know all these people like tng you know i'm like i could happily hang in a pub with with geordie laforge or uh, mm. or Riker. I'll be worried that Riker's trying to flirt with me, and I, I, I admit, wouldn't yep. say no. <laughs> From season two onwards, like, he's still disturbing without the beard. To quote uh, Rick Mail in Blackadder, love the beard, gives me something to hang on to. <laughs> and then again, you could hang out with the cast of DS9. Yep. Um, With Voyager, I don't think you could hang out with them. Like, maybe Harry Kim... But hmm. you know he's that one guy who, if you start drinking with, all he's going to talk about is his job and how yeah. excited he is to be, like, low-level middle management. God, yeah. It's it's that thing of, I love the Doctor. He he would be too much all business and petty grievances about his colleagues. And that's it. Those are the two topics. And, like, you know, Neelix would be... Ne Neelix would be having a pint. Neelix works in theory... Mm. And I think you see moments where Ethan Phillips is, makes it like when he's trying to be a bit more kind of Del Boy in space. And I think yeah. that's what he kind of misses. He kind of misses the roguish charm of like oh, Del Boy from Only Fools and Horses. This is one of those great British only references. It's great. I think somewhere between like Del Boy and a hostile Farscape alien. You know, the kind that are preemptively hateful of you, even though you came to buy stuff off of them for money and weren't going to take the piss somehow they're already weird and angry and you know that if you're with neelix in a pub he is going to be drinking a lot of pints and mm -hmm. talking about how attractive his much younger girlfriend is oh god oh one of those yeah as someone who's been to a lot a lot of anime conventions you couldn't I believe that Neelix has a Kez body pillow. Oh, God. I don't know if you're familiar with those kind of body pillows. I don't know if they've made the shore to, like, vendor halls of English conventions. I've been on the internet. I've been to MCM okay. Expo. I've, I've seen these things. <laughs> God, that's a <laughs> terrible point of comparison. Going, yes, reaching both our international shores are oh, these anime body pillows. And Neelix is definitely someone who would have one. Definitely. That said, uh, I have a friend who does own one, but it's of one of the snakes from, I think it's Metal Gear Solid 3. Okay. Complete with cigar, so more amusing than weird. Yeah, okay. More tasteful. More tasteful. And unfortunately, that, that's the problem with Neelix, is that when you introduce the... Like you said, it's like the JRPG anime of, oh, 
yeah, she looks like she's 16, but in reality, she's 600. So that's not creepy, right? It's like, no, that, that, that makes it creepier. You're actually emphasizing the creepiness. Yeah, with Kess, it's, it's got a weird element to it because she's, she's not old, but she's relatively human adult developed and she will die soon as well. Because they're short-lived, the camper. Yeah. Which maybe, like the, I didn't mention there in the recap, but the caretaker gives them five years worth of provisions. And it's like, are you expecting them to work their way out in five years? Or are you just going to, I don't know, figure, give them five good years? Hopefully they won't have any kids. And then they'll be dead. And that'll be fine. You know, you can just leave them to it. Maybe the caretaker's plan is just to play the Bowie song five years on repeat and hope they all despair themselves to death. Maybe, maybe. I admit, I got very excited when we watched Deep Space Nine. and was like, oh my God, they added story to this. They added characters to this. And this feels like a backslide slightly. It feels like, as you say, they're confident that they don't need to try at this point. It's traditional, but as someone who's been watching Strange New Worlds, you can do traditional. Traditional Trek can work. Oh, yeah. You just have to make it interesting. And there is potential. When I was watching this, I kind of got the vibe of, oh, the Delta Quadrant is almost post-apocalyptic. Like, they have Hmm. no resources, and there's a bunch of space wreckage, and, like, teleporters, you know, there's me using my Blake 7 uh, jingo again by calling it teleporters. At least I didn't go Doctor Who and call it the transmaps. And they've, they don't have transporters and they don't have like working water. So you, someone's like, hey, this might be this really kind of desperate, like Wild West frontier, which Star Trek has kind of gone away from since the 60s. You've even got the Kazon as a kind of awkward, almost like that kind of 1940s American Western idea of what native cultures were like. This isn't the first time that Star Trek is doing this in this episode alone. Yeah. And, and again, we're two cis white guys from uh, the UK. We are the perfect objective adjudicators of the Native American experience. Oh, God. The K's on a weird. They're the kind of thing where they are made up like if you accidentally got the terracotta makeup in the Klingon stuff and you didn't quite manage all the ridges right. So they have, they have an odd look for them, but they're more just a gang, I guess. Mm. They're, they're a rough clutch of people. They look like something which, like, okay, you're a gamer. You, you've you played a lot of different um, RPG systems. Do they feel more like something you just picked out of a monster manual by random for a random encounter than a properly developed race and culture in their own right? Yeah, like when you go, I could pick some evil dwarves, but I'm going to go for the Dwerger instead because they've got their own entry. They're more of a random encounter species yeah. than an actual species. Yes. I guess like lizard men compared to going, oh yeah, well, you know, if I'm fighting an elf, that's going to feel weird. But a lizard men, just because they only have monster stats, that's fine. The Cardassians in DS9 feel like a legitimate threat to hmm. DS9. And of course, you've got like the backstory with the Cardassians and the Bajorans. So they feel like a legitimate threat, which has history and context to the main arcs of the show and Kira, one of its major central characters. Like, you've got Q, who is a godlike being who can snap out of existence with a fork. Like, okay, you've got an established threat. Like, who can you have the professional acting gravitas of Sir Patrick Stewart go against? God. 
yeah. you have him go against God. Okay, in Cage, it kind of falls apart because the villains of the Cage, who aren't the big bad of the show, are basically a bunch of aliens going, okay, can you just fuck? Please mm. fuck for us. Okay, if that was a recurring villain in Star Trek, I would watch it. That's weirdly on point with the caretaker, isn't it, actually? Yeah, I would I would quite happily watch an alien species, a regular occurring species in a Star Trek show, where, okay, actually a race of aliens whose entire goal is to make other races fuck for them, that's a Lex plot. Yes, definitely. All right, egg timer. So, okay, egg timer. Egg timer. Lex is a 1990s US, no, Canadian, German co-production which is a weird space opera which might be the horniest show on tv it is far future in the dark universe where there is a giant ship called the lex which looks on one hand like a giant dragonfly from the other side it looks like a giant cock and balls which can destroy planets with the with the balls one of the characters is a former love slave who has who is now part cluster lizard who is a horny uh ass kicking badass unfortunately the one guy she's attracted to on the ship is a dead guy, and dead guys don't get boners. It is weird, it is wonderful. The battle hymn of the Brennan G is amazing earworm, and if you haven't watched it and you really want to watch something really thirsty, check it out because it is the horniest thing this side of uh, the, the early side of HBO. Yeah, I couldn't in good conscience say it's good, but it is certainly a, a show. It is fun and weird. Like it is it is and then there's the Kazon who, let's be fair, to be polite, they're essentially space scousers. And so they are no threat to Voyager, which is fully equipped, even though half its crew has been killed. You know, like a bunch of crew who aren't even in the show, It you know, all these people who are like, hey, we are actually important. Now, nah, mate, we've read the credits. You're not in the credits. Yeah, we saw the PR photos and all that. So Voyager, just to wrap up, one last thing, because I've been curious about this with each of the episodes that we've seen. This aired on the 16th of January, 1995, where in the UK... Wait, hang on. One... Wait, the 16th of January? Apparently. The 16th of January, 1995? Apparently. That is the worst 13th birthday present for me ever. <laughs> well, here it is, just for you. Yeah. 12th birthday present. Oh... Which also means <laughs> the number one hit, both on your birthday and on Star Trek Voyager's birthday, was uh, Cotton Eye Joe by the Rednecks in the UK. <laughs> and, boys, and Boys to Men's On Bended Knee. I don't remember On Bended Knee. I very much remember Cotton Eye Joe. I remember Cotton Eye Joe because I, I know it purely from Harry Potter memes. Oh, God. There's, uh, yeah. right... I mean, I was, what, 14 at the time. So, of course, I heard it a lot on the radio then. Uh, but anyway, with that knowledge of where we were in time with it and our experience of this episode, I know we've got Encounter at Farpoint at the lowest part of our list currently. I think this beats it as as current work. Yeah, as much as I didn't enjoy the episode, at least I can go... Well, you tried. Yes. Even at Farpoint, there is a sense of, well, you tried for half of it. Mm. But, like, it feels like there is an attempt at... There, there is an attempt. Like, they're yeah. trying to build this new sector of space. It just doesn't help that it all feels very kind of 
bland and safe in the way that like 90s star trek kind of is at times yeah and i i don't feel i know this cast that no. well i know tom paris well and that's both a good and bad thing i will give it this the characters don't suffer from we're going to talk in snatches from our character bio as tng mm. and ds9 suffer from a lot the only one who suffers from that is uh balana who yeah. keeps reminding us that she's klingon to harry every so often i swear i am certain that klingons would have dealt with that situation a lot more chilled or at least angry but they wouldn't have just been assaulting a door repeatedly they might have fashioned a weapon out of something but they're not they just constructed a rudimentary leave. yeah they're not just berserk monsters and Belana makes a bad case for them. I would say this episode wins points for having a good dog. Yeah. Very good dog. Very good girl. I, I'll be honest, I will give an episode and like an extra point for a good doggo. I am very partial to a good doggo. I just peered over to my bed where Willie, my cat, is lying. And he's just chosen to ignore me because of that statement. Yeah, I did wonder whether he was going to take offense there. Okay, so with the caretaker now in the number four spot as the worst episode of all Star Trek currently. We're going from one episode with a dog to another episode also with a dog. Hooray! Hooray! Right, so we open with that most Star Trek of locations, a cornfield in Iowa, where there's one big burly guy is being chased by these two guys who kind of look like PlayStation 1 graphics. Been, he's been chased through this field, and they can do stretchy CGI to get underneath doors. But due to a mishap, the farmer comes out. And like all farmers in America, he's packing. But his shotgun is a phaser shotgun. And because shotguns and phasers work exactly the same, the aliens are destroyed when his corn crib explodes. And then he turns to see the big the guy that they were chasing come out of the corn. Oh, wait! It's a Klingon. Oh, oh no. no, he's been shot. Oops. And from there, we cut to the best Star Trek theme tune of all time. How a dare nice you. little soft, rock, <laughs> nice little soft rock number called "Faith of the Heart," which oh. shows us inspiring shots of sailing ships and space shuttles. One of the space shuttles is called Enterprise, which is a funny little kind of time loop because the space shuttle Enterprise was given the name because of the Starship Enterprise in some TV show, which I'm sure we'll talk about at some point. Anyway, we cut to Jonathan Archer, not Jeffrey Archer. They changed that name for good reasons, for UK import reasons. Um, He is the captain of the NX-01 Starship Enterprise, which is a vessel which will go to Warp 5 or Warp 4.8 because the Vulcans, who have been helping rebuild Earth after the apocalypse, have been holding the humans back for fear that the universe will get human beings on it. Um, he's getting the ship fixed up with his first officer, uh, engin who engineered Trip Tucker, who is a good old boy. Been a while since Star Trek has had a good old boy in the cast. They are called back to Earth because they have found the um, alien called a Klingon. And the Vulcans are saying, we should just let this guy die. The Klingons have issues. And Tucker, who there's no easy way of getting around this. Tucker's, uh, not Tucker, Archer, is kind of racist to the Klingons. Be no, wait, no. 
he is racist to the Vulcans. I am good at this. He's oh, racist so to the Vulcans because the Vulcans have been stopping his dad's warp ship from being built. So he has a bit of a chip on his shoulder. And he's like, no, I think this Klingon guy looks fine. Why don't we just kind of carry him on our, onto our vessel? We'll just stick him in like a cupboard and we'll just pop over to the Klingon homeworld and we'll just drop him at their doorstep with a box of chocolates and a very politely worded note saying, hey, we found this guy. Sorry. And the Vulcans, the Vulcans begrudgingly agree, but Onda provides though that they have a Vulcan science officer help a Vulcan science officer, a good old boy, and a very kind of square-jawed space captain. Huh. Where have I heard that before? Don't know. Mm, no idea. But this time, the Vulcan science officer is a female Vulcan called Tapol. Not to be confused with the famous um, uh, J- uh, Jewish actor Tapol, who famously appeared in that little-known little film Flash Gordon. I thought you were going to say to Pal. And so um, Archer gathers his crew. He has um, Mayweather, who is the helmsman, who is a space boomer, um, <laughs> who are people. <laughs> Sorry, it's, okay, space still, boomer. it's still um, fun. It's still funny. Um, oh. <laughs> he is the youngest one, but he has the most space experience because he's been on like warp free capable ships thrown to various colonies and planets. Then we have Malcolm Reed who is um, another British person in Star Trek. British people do appear in Star Trek who aren't just playing aliens. And like the other great English character in Star Trek, Dr. Julian Bashir, he's upper class and kind of annoying. We, we never get space cockneys. I want space cockneys. Yes. They get Hoshi, who is a linguistics expert. And that's pretty much our crew. They are sent off after the they get a nice little speech. And they're sent off. Um, the speech is done by a guy who glued himself to a counter in a Starbucks in America to protest about the price charge difference for soy milk. I assume Zephyr Cochran did as well as the actor. Yeah, but for me, he's always, you know, as a former Starbucks barista, he's always going to be soy milk glue counter guy. I feel sorry for the poor barista who had to take a spatula to his hand. Four and a half minutes. <laughs> Four and a half minutes. Great. I'm, I'm what, 30 minutes into the episode? Brilliant. Meanwhile, the PS1 aliens, who are actually called the Sulaban, are in a meeting with this shadowy guy who claims to be from the future. Um, Something called a temporal Cold War is mentioned several times, but what this is about, we don't know. Meanwhile, the Enterprise is on its way to Kronos, the Klingon homeworld. They also have a space doctor called Doc. He's an alien called Dr. Phlox. He has several wives and many wacky approaches to medicine he kind of looks like neelix uh neelix are antidepressants um as they're trying to get the klingon guy to talk the sulaban attack and they promptly nick the klingon and to paul goes well no klingon let's go home and archer's like nah we're gonna find our klingon because we set out into space and we're american gosh darn it um the, the fact that humans in star trek uh, are always kind of automatically coded as american always kind of bugged me um, but there is a nearby planet. It is actually a kind of spaceport, which is a wretched hive of scum and villainy. F run by the blue man group because it's very blue. They head to the planet and take a shuttlecraft down because, um, transporters are this new and revolutionary thing, which we've just invented, but we've never dared to use it on humans before. Um, stick a pin in that. We'll check off to that later. So they, the crew go down to the planet. And uh, Mayweather and Tucker get distracted by this weird 
sexy space bar where blue naked space ladies eat butterflies. That's how you get your kicks. I ain't shaming. Meanwhile, uh, Hoshi and Archer run into quite literally the Suliban resistance. And we find out that the Suliban have had the evolution altered and expanded through the help of Future Guy because this weird alliance. And apparently they wanted to use the Klingon to either influence or to kind of prevent the Klingon High Council from doing stuff. I'm, I can't remember. My attention on this episode wasn't that great. It was kind of flagging here and there. Meanwhile, the Suliban attack and Archer, Archer is shot and they get no closer to getting their goal. The leader of the Suliban resistance is also killed. And due to concerns, the pole is put in charge of the ship while Archer is being treated and unconscious. Tucker goes to T'Pol and says, Hey, we can't go back to Earth, even though you have every single authority to go back to Earth since you're in command. And T'Pol goes, it is quite logical that we go back to Earth. But she decides off camera to do Archer a solid and help Archer complete the mission. Archer wakes up and he's like, oh, T'Pol, you helped me out. Maybe I should uh, reconsider my decades of uh, space racism in, in, um, and think better of Vulcans. But they get a lead on where the secret Suliban base is, which is this weird space station with a bunch of, like, dodecahedron shuttle ships attached to it, which takes place in a blue nebula. They really like blue lighting in this. Um, it's not, like, proper bisexual lighting, but it's very much kind of Y2K heavy blue lighting, which you'd have kind of like in early 80s movies. Um, Archer and Trip infiltrate the alien ship because if you're going to have a daring espionage mission you're not going to take the guy from the royal navy you're going to take your captain and your engineer because if anything bad happens to them eh you'll be fine so they get onto the, they break onto the space station they find the klingon guy but they also find a lot of gunfights and so they get chased they get separated archer says to trip you go and come back for me later emphasis on the you come save me okay trip oh. Ooh, I recognize Ooh, that sci-fi sound anywhere. You are so close. Okay, that's okay. that's good. Okay. I, I feel that you had a head start with this one. This was our, our test last week before yep. we fell into that temporal vortex. Let's see how... Will you overrun more or less than me? Right. So, Trip and the Klingon escape in one of these weird dodecahedron sphere things and make their way back up to Enterprise. Meanwhile, Archer bumbling around... Uh, does that wonderful bit of, um, he has this wonderful plot contrivance where he steps into the time room where the shadowy guy is. By the way, they have a time room, which means you can see yourself one minute in, like a second into the future. It's kind of trippy in that kind of early Y2K computer effects kind of way. The leader of the alien Suliban runs into the room and promptly tries to shoot Archer. If you're going to try and shoot someone, don't try and shoot them in a room which shows you what's going to happen one to two seconds in the future because I can see this getting dragged out a bit. Mm. So do they get into a fist fight in the in the time room. Meanwhile, Trip and the Klingon are going back into space and DePaul's gone, okay, we've got the Klingon. Let's skedaddle. And Trip goes, nuh-uh. Archer said, come back for me with emphasis on the come back for me. And DePaul's like, don't think we can do that. Meanwhile, Hoshi's like, hey, why don't we do this? And DePaul's like, Okay, let's try and save him through the nebula, which is distorting all our signals. Why don't we use our fancy, um, uh, the fancy tele, the fun, I keep calling it a teleporter. This is going to keep going on. 
Uh, why don't we use the fancy teleporter, which we've never used on human physiognomy in any way, which is good because Archer's about to get shot. Archer's going to die. Scott Bakula ain't leaping out of this one, but bam, he has teleported out of the time room and he is the first human to ever be successfully trans-teleported bollocks or, you know, into a ship. And the Enterprise escapes, and the space station with Suleiman explodes. They take him, they take the Klingon guy to Kronos, and having lost the box of chocolates and the note, they think, okay, we'll just return him in person. And so they walk into, like, the Klingon throne room, and a bunch of Klingons just kind of stand and look at them. They talk some Klingon, and they jab the Klingon guy with a needle to prove that he is who he says he is. And Archer and the others like, Oh, okay, um, guests will leave. So they leave and they get onto the ship and having successfully completed their first mission, Archer's like, hey, guess what? Starfleet has said, you know what? Since you're out there, let's try this whole explore strange new worlds kind of shtick. It sounds kind of fun. You might make a fancy TV show out of it. But Archer invites Paul into his room and says, oh, by the way, I'm sorry for being a horrific space racist. I promise I will try and be a less of a horrific space racist in future. And T'Pol goes, I'm purely logical. Okie dokie. And so the Enterprise flies off to explore strange new worlds, to seek out new life and new civilizations. And we fade out and we get a nice little soft guitar number of the best theme tune of all time. And that is the first episode of Star Trek Broken Bow. Okay, three minutes 39, you overran. So you beat me this time. I will say I was biting my tongue so much to not interrupt you with all this best theme tune nonsense. What the hell? What the hell? I'm sorry. I you know, Look, I am a child of the 80s. I am always down for a soft rock power ballad because I'm waiting for the power. Eventually, the power ballad has to make a comeback. I, I wanted to make a comeback. So I have a it, question for you. Go on. There is a there is a scene where, due to space contamination and the need to get some sexy ratings, oh um, god, Trip and T'Pol engage in a uh, decontamination scene where they stress down to their skivvies and have to lather each other in a sanitizing gel. Charlie, yeah. After two years of COVID, have you ever worked a shift at your job where you've had to strip down to your skivvies and be slathered with sanitizing gel? Because as an essential coffee worker, I have to say, I have. Oh, great. Yeah, no, luckily I, I work from home, so I was spared such horrors. But so that felt like a scene that was incredibly crowbarred in. It will only be beaten by uh, Star Trek Into Darkness. Quickly having um, Carol Marcus stripped down to her underwear. We're seeing the early seeds, which I think will lead to what they called sex position for Game of Thrones. You at least, you get a bit of chatter, a bit of exposition during this scene where it feels like even the actors are very much like, this is what we're hard to do then. Like, Jean-Luc Picard never had to do this. Ben Sisko never had to do this, and here we are. <sighs> you see, the, the the sad thing for Jeline Balok, Balok, I don't know how you pronounce it, who yeah. plays to Paul. She's probably thinking, I am a woman in Hollywood. I am always, I am sadly always paid to do this. Yeah. 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 That's sad. Um, but yeah, yeah. I, I remember that being a thing. 
Now, with Enterprise, it was the first time that I'd acquired a television show in a a kind of off the back of a lorry sort of format, a a lorry called Kazar. And I I tried. I tried. Are you sure it wasn't called Kazan? (laughs) I just, I couldn't make it through all of the, the handful of episodes that I got from it. I'm sure this scene happens multiple times of let's get Mm. the actors just slathering gel over each other. And I don't know about you, but in the COVID times, there is a definite, like there are different levels of hand sanitizer gel. I've been to some shops where it's like, oh, you've got some nice scented stuff. I've been to some surprisingly fancy shops with some incredibly sewery smelling gel. And I desperately hope they've got better sanitizing gel in in this future like most of the sanitizing gel i've had to deal with for like work purposes always just kind of makes me smell like antiseptic yeah so i mean aside from that we've got flocks who seems to be the uh hey neelix was such a hit with the fans he's the wacky alien yeah although if neelix was put in a, a jeff goldblum fly machine with Hank McCoy, because <laughs> oh, he, he feels like he has the morality of the X-Men's Beast. He has all sorts of weird creatures. And I admit, gimmick-wise, I didn't mind the weird animals. Why are you dissing on Dr. Flox's morality by comparing him to the second least moral member of the X-Men outside of Charles Xavier himself? And that is saying a lot. <laughs> yeah, like... At this point, like, okay, you know, the the war crimes of Hank McCoy are numerous at this point. Yeah, and I'm sure that Dr. Phlox, much like um, Mordin Solas from the Mass Effect series, would be down to do some war crimes if it involved playing with people's genetics. Like, he feels like he'd be up for kind of like, I, oh, by the way, I've put this alien in you. Uh, why? <laughs> I don't know. Like the Doctors of Old who'd put like a goat bollock in someone. I once had a bad case of goat bollocks. Oh, dear. Well, the American healthcare system is more interesting than I, I heard that. Don't ask. Um, <laughs> okay, quick question. How much Stargate SG-1 have you seen? Uh, three seasons and then a couple of episodes here and there. I mostly watched it while I was playtesting a role-playing game based on Stargate SG-1 for crafty games and... I learned that I didn't have to automatically support every sci-fi show. And in fact, I, I really vehemently disliked Stargate SG-1. The characters in this show feel more military than we have for Star Trek. So it, like, it feels like it's trying to do like SG-1-style military banter, but mm. it doesn't. you don't have the connective tissue. Like you can have, like with the exception of Scott Bakula, who I think is playing like your most swashbuckling space hero that we've had in star trek since kirk like the characters don't really feel like much and it doesn't help that the uniforms are really kind of just all one color with like some very light piping to distinguish it's weird i still have the attitude that starfleet is mostly nerds and swashbuckling idiots and it seems to they seem to coexist in a great balance. And this puts a wrench in that. I assume basically later on in Starfleet's history, they they reach that division. But here, 
it does feel a lot more American military of the extremely early aughts. And it aired on the 1st of yep. October 2001. So it aired after 9-11, but it must have been filmed before it. And it feels yep. ready. It feels ready for that American war on terror era media blitz that happened at that point. Not quite to Jack Bauer torturing people. Yeah, like 24 was like, it's kind of eerie how 24 came out just at the right point for it to be the hit show. Definitely. And it's, it's not as bad as I thought it was going to be. It's still pretty bad. 24 or Enterprise. I mean, both, really. Uh, 24 had, I liked some of the spyish nonsense, but it's extremely difficult to get past the uh, the neocon madness and how mm. it just became culture. You know, even now you get TV shows where far too easily people go, well, torture works. Well, it doesn't. It doesn't actually work. Yeah, yeah, but Jack Bauer did it, you know, so it's fine. But yeah, with Enterprise, I feel... I liked what little I saw of the general crew, you know, Mayweather yeah. with his whole excitement about finding a sweet spot in the ship. I like a bit more of the real mechanics of how, like, this ship works. Yeah. Because it feels like they're really kind of trying to apply the Star Trek technology in a realistic sense to, like, a very near future where Star Trek technology is two steps away generally from being, this is magic. Because anyone who is obsessed with how these ships works can go to a shop and buy Mr. Scott's technical manual to the Enterprise. Yeah. A book which even in my most fervent love of Trek, never actually owned. I had a, a friend with a secret Star Trek shrine, and that's where those kind of <laughs> books, that's where I encountered them and the how to learn Klingon, that kind of thing. But it feels submarine-y in places you got mm. handles you got buttons and it's the last time that we'll really see it's got safety rails yeah and that's great it looks like it's mostly filing cabinets in the bridge and it it feels physical uh the engines they're just a big set and that's kind of cool yeah it's, it's nice it's kind of it's chunky yes there's something very like you can see the tactility of the whole place. And that's definitely got a charm for it. I have, for my sins, already subscribed to Paramount Plus because I'm a, an easy mark. And part of me is thinking I might crack on and start watching some more Enterprise beyond this out of morbid curiosity and seeing at what point I get fed up with it and whether it's beyond episode six where I think I gave up the first time. That would be very uncasual for you. That is the problem. It's like, it's tempting, but I much like introducing a what non-Trek things we've been watching sort of segment to this, we need to make sure that this operation is on the level and that we are treating this as casually as possible. At, at no point just very casually slipping in stuff that we already know from when we've watched Trek before. Exactly. Be it war crimes or characters who are actually other characters in different shows. Enterprise does have the goodest boy. It gives us poor, um, Captain Archer's beloved Space Beagle. I never knew that I needed dogs in Star Trek. Like, we needed, we needed them. I have to wonder if they called him Porthos because they couldn't legally call him Snoopy. Because one of the landing modules for a moon probe was called the Charlie Brown, and it had an attachment probe called the Snoopy. Huh? I learned this from a Snoopy annual 
back in the 90s, and I think there was a run of strips where Snoopy imagined himself on the moon. And of course, Snoopy is a beagle. So I wonder if they call him Porphos because they couldn't legally call him Snoopy because of, like, copyright infringement. Ha. Huh. <laughs> so yes, just before we put Enterprise Episode 1, Broken Bow, on the big board, this came out at a point where, again, we've got some interesting picks musically. Alicia Keys' Fallen was number one in the US at this point. And, you know, it's all right. It, it felt like it was everywhere for a time. And in the UK, I swear, our number one records, I, at some point we'll get a good one. But this was Mambo number five by Bob the Builder. Look, 9-11 had just happened and we needed to heal. And apparently, apparently this is how we did it. Look, with Enterprise's place in history, we're just a few years away from it being Coldplay all the time. So I think we should count our blessings because we're going to get Coldplay. We're going to get everything inspired by Coldplay, oh, which God. was just the early Y2K of British music. Yeah. So on the board, we currently have Emissary at number one. We have Caretaker at number four. And I wanted to watch this and do that kind of, hey, controversial turnaround. What we all thought was bad in the popular culture. It's actually surprisingly good. And, uh, and it's not. Really, I think it's the best one. I think it's the best one just purely because of Faith of the Heart. First on the list. I, oh, I <laughs> just, no, no. I, why are you doing this to me? <laughs> Am I going to have to cancel the podcast over Faith of, of the Heart? Or I forget what the actual name of it was even, but that, oh, I, it's just so, I was saying about, Deep Space Nine's theme being dirgy. And this feels a bit like that and saccharine and very too American. Like it, It's very American. It is. I feel like at some point in the credits there is a waving American flag. And if not, it's basically there in the subtext. Yes, definitely. Definitely. So for me, Caretaker had Neelix. Yes, that was bad. But also... It has promise. It has a really cool premise. It's like, yeah, let's go out in the middle of nowhere. We have a half pirate crew. We've got a criminal as our big pilot. We've got Harry Kim, who's just nice. And we've got the doctor. Here, we've got Scott Bakula, who is endlessly charming. Like, Trip and Topol are evidently going to be our number two and three lead characters. Yep. And they're just not interesting. No. The thing is, we're not ranking the entire show. We're ranking this episode. We don't see enough of the other people to really get a sense of them. We don't see any further detail about the Temporal Cold War. But that felt like a very TV movie, sci-fi show kind of thing. This is the first of the pilots we've watched to not suffer from the characters speak explicitly in their character bio. Mm. Because that would imply some of these characters have characters to have bios. Yeah, so I think this has to be our new worst. Yep. Yeah, Encounter at Far Points rising up now. It is our number three best out of all of these. It's the exact middle point between best and worst. Sitting comfortably two spots below the emissary, two spots above Broken Bow, which, yeah, it feels fair. That was an incredibly middle-of-the-road episode. It's just not 
good enough. And I'm hoping there'll be some Enterprise episodes to wow me. I'm sure there'll be some amazing ones out there, in theory. But this isn't it. That's Enterprise. That's Enterprise. Yep. And now we will press on to the next Star Trek show, which was all the way in 27... 2017. 2017, oh yay. Yeah, Star Trek Discovery Season 1. In the prep for this, I watched Episode 1, and I realized it was a multi-parter. So I saw Episode 2, and I realized I'm not going to actually see Discovery in these episodes, but I'm not plowing on, because it's got enough of an ongoing story that you could keep going. So we are just doing Episodes 1 and 2 together as one thing. It was 2017 and I was excited. I'd been excited and let down and excited in that order with the three different Star Trek films that had come out and I was ready for some proper Trek. This had Brian Fuller behind it who in grand Brian Fuller tradition left before it even aired which I guess saved it from the cancellation that many of his other shows got. You can definitely see his DNA. So, are we ready to go with the timer? Let's let's see. Can, can I sum up two whole episodes of Star Trek Discovery in 10 minutes? Okay, and engage. Cool. So, uh, this time we're sharing perspective between the Klingons and the Federation. We start off with the Klingons and the lead antagonist, Kuvma, talking about an enemy saying they're coming. And what I love is a quick reversal. Our enemy will use the phrase, we come in peace. Say, yes, okay, this is interesting. Sure, the Klingons look weirdly shiny, weirdly sweaty, but Klingon ships have got to be pretty hot. We skip over to the Federation side where we see our protagonist, Michael Burnham, and her boss, Philippa Giorgio, who are on an expedition. They're on a deserty planet with some bug-type aliens, and they're breaking open a well, getting some water running here, and trying to quickly beam away before a storm rises. It's the kind of thing where if they mess up, they'll be trapped for 89 years. But the confidence, the kind of swagger that they've got of, we're gonna do some space, and we're gonna be awesome at it, is is intoxicating. We're gonna do a Starfleet. Yeah, we're gonna do a Starfleet all over this place. Isn't it great? We get a quick opening title, which is very nice kind of graphic art sort of stuff. It's a bit of a generic theme tune, but it's got a nice momentum to it. And boom, we're on a ship. Is this Discovery? No. As I said, we're not seeing Discovery in either of these episodes. We're on the Shenzhou, which is kind of a halfway house between the Enterprise Enterprise and the 2009 Enterprise. It's all in Dutch angles. It's got lens flare, but it's all a bit more techy than you'd usually get. Giorgio's the captain here. Uh, Michael and Saru, who is Doug Jones's glorious alien in here, they've big bridge crew people to focus on and there's literally only one other character who'll carry on to the main series called Detmer who works on the con and I don't think is even named in these episodes. No. Michael is off fixing a relay when she sees some kind of structure which is of Klingon design despite this not being Klingon space and there's a Klingon standing ominously in some armor on it. She gets attacked by him and kills him but is flung out into space. Uh, the Klingons 
throw a funeral for this guy. There's slightly less drinking and violence than I'd expect from a standard funeral, but the normal amount of screaming. This is their first official dead body in a war with the Federation. They want to go back to the old ways, which apparently involve a lot of violence and invasions and such, rather than a bit of a cold war with the Federation. They nail the coffin to the outside of their ship, which is an incredibly metal move. I like that. It's pretty cool. Over on the Shenzhou, we get Michael having a flashback to her time in Vulcan school. Uh, Apparently she was adopted by Sarek. Yes, Spock's dad, Sarek, after her family were killed by Klingons. So she's she's got a lot invested in finding Klingons being all hostile. She breaks out of the med bay while dying from radiation to tell everyone, hey, Klingons, it's all bad, just in time for a Klingon ship to uncloak. They appear to do nothing, although inside, all is Game of Thronesy drama. Takuvma is looking for a torchbearer, and you get an albino Klingon called Vok, who shows up having been disowned by his family, He's an outcast and burns his hand to show he's just as hard as Takuvma and ends up getting the job. Uh, Takuvma says, you, mate, you're going places. You're not an abomination. You're a mirror of me because it's all about me. He's going to unite the 24 houses of Klingons and this is how he's going to do it. Over in Shenzhou, Michael calls up Sarek and has a bit of a chat saying, oh, what's up with these Klingons? And Sarek says, the Klingons... Oh yeah, they keep pinging our borders, and whenever we try and be diplomatic, it goes really badly, so we just murder them. The moment we see them, we kill them. It's their Vulcan Hello, which, hey, that's the name of the episode. Michael suggests doing this. Captain Giorgio says no, and Michael mutinies. Knock you out with a nerve pinch, running up and going, hey, let's fire on the Klingons. At that point, it's too late. The torchbearer has lit a giant signal flare, which apparently is how you call all the 24 Klingon houses ships to this location and is far better than like transwarp talking. Space calls for aid. Yeah. So the Klingons arrive. The Federation's a bit tense and some of their ships arrive as well. It's all about to kick off, but they brig Michael and they apologize for touching the artifact for killing the dude, but it's too late. Shenzhou is fired upon and it is instantly wrecked. It is a, it's a mess. Similar to the ships we saw in DS9's pilot and Voyager, uh, Shenzhou is not in a good state. Michael sees all of this from the brig when one of the bridge crew, Connor, stumbles in, disorientated, concussed, just as he's about to let her out. The brig is destroyed and he's blasted into space. She's in a bad situation because she's going to run out of air or the force fields for the prison is going to shut down when the ship starts rerouting power. This is a bit rough. At the same time, Saru is saying the ship's right off. We need to leave. We need to just divert power from down there and go. Saru is a prey animal, or at least was descended from prey animals. He has a good sense of when a a situation is a write-off, and this is that situation. Sarek calls, kind of talks to Michael via her her catra through a Vulcan bond they share. And he's mildly put out that she's imminently going to die, but reckons she can get out. The Shenzhou itself is going through some rough times with the Klingon ships 
firing on them and on the other Federation ships, all until the uh, the Europa arrives, a giant Federation ship led by Admiral Anderson. Surely he's going to do brilliantly. No, no. He, he suggests a ceasefire, peaceful resolution, and the Klingons play along long enough to get the Europa chill out, and they decloak a massive ship which plows into the Europa, destroying it. Everything's blown apart. Other Federation ships are blown apart. The Klingons are celebrating. Most of them leave going, that was good, wasn't it? Leaving only the flagship behind to gather up their dead and keep nailing them to the outside of the ship because that's good. They're also calling up for Shenzhou to say, you lot are alive because you're a warning to Starfleet, to the Federation. We're going to mess you up. Obviously, Giorgio and the rest of the ship aren't having any of this. Michael does a great job of launching herself out of the prison into the hallways by out-debating the ship's computer into letting her kind of get shot out into the vacuum of space. And she runs up in time to see this plan to do something to a corpse of a Klingon, mainly by transporting stuff to it. And in the end, she and Giorgio come up for plan to beam on board, try not to murder Takuvma, because you're going to make a martyr there. You're coming up on 30 seconds. Oh my god. Okay, so they teleport on board. Giorgio dies, gets left behind. Takuvma dies. Oh no, they've created a martyr. Vox swears to take over the operation, and it's all gone a bit wrong. Uh, They bomb part of the flagship and they escape, only to have Michael discharged, put in prison for mutiny. She failed to stop a war with the Klingons and says, I am the enemy. End. Have Have I done it? Four seconds. Four seconds. You had four seconds left in the timer. Oh my word. Four seconds left. There we go. There we go. You used te- you used the word teleport. Yeah, I'm less fussy about it than you. <laughs> <laughs> so, I read a, a lot of comics. I've had a, a bit of a habit since the mid- early mid-90s. And there's a point where you start getting... Uh, decompressed storytelling being more of a thing. The, the Brian Michael Bendisification of things. I would say more, more like the Warren Ellisification. I, mean, I feel like it's more of a Warren Ellis thing than a Bendis thing. Mine is hopefully quite a lot less problematic than mm. that. But yeah, for me, it, I don't know. I read Ellis's stuff, but I came on to his work with Excalibur, which was pretty much standard comics. With Bendis, it was Powers and Ultimate Spider-Man, and those would take, you know, those were very much writing for the trade. And this feels yeah. like that. This feels like, even though it's the same amount of time as the other episodes, a lot less gets done, but they do a lot more with it. They do a lot more character work, which is the mm. thing which has been missing from voyager and non-existent nearly non-existent in enterprise like you know it makes us care for michael it makes us care for philippa giorgio even though she's the big name guest star we know she's not leaving this two-parter with a pulse yeah she's very much the game of thrones sean bean at this point which yeah will be interesting later on in discovery episodes but at least for now that was a pretty much a given but she wasn't going to make it all the way through. And then, yeah, Doug Jones, who is just glorious. We don't get enough of him here. He's very much a, an official antagonist to Michael. 
Like, whatever she wants to do, he doesn't. He wants to run and hide instead. He is the one thing I don't think we've really had in a main cast of a Star Trek show, which is to have the prissy one. Mm. Normally, with Star Trek, you never get a character who's like, I think this is a bad idea. Yeah, I like a good coward. You, you like a good guy who's like, hey, why don't we not? Because normally when you're like, the closest you have with like in Star Trek would probably be Riker, which is, we could do this, or we could do this with flames. Mm. Which is how Riker rolls. Um, I think the cold open for this one is definitely selling Star Trek, as mi- Star Trek and Starfleet as mission statement, which I've definitely noticed in the new shows and with the new movies, that they're very much Starfleet as an ideology and as a concept is definitely pushed a lot more than it was in 90s era Trek, where it's very much like Starfleet is our job, whereas it very much feels like Starfleet is our mission statement and overriding ideology for our actions. Yeah, I feel that I'm not necessarily a fan of either Rick Berman or Alex Kurtzman as people. Berman was very much the attitude of, I don't believe Starfleet, I don't believe this future can exist, but if you're playing in it, you have to sell it. And Mm. Kurtzman, after the Star Trek 09 kind of films, this set of series with this and with uh, Strange New Worlds feels like it's a lot more of a, oh, this was what people wanted. This is what people Mm. felt was missing. It's still very much, here is a protagonist, and we're going to make this all about the protagonist. And... I admit, I like Michael in this. I like Michael where I'm at with watching Discovery, which is early mid-season four. But there was a point, which was most of season one and two, where I was like, ah, really, Michael? Again, could we could we see more of the rest of the cast? Because they're interesting. It's not an ensemble show yet. No, it is. Yet. It is like the... Your leading actor drama, and then you have like the characters around them. So, mm. yeah. Yeah, and that's relatively fine. Again, I look forward to the episodes where we start seeing the rest of the cast, but the three main ones we see here are very good, very compelling. Mm. And as I said, and Detmer is just there. Detmer's there. And there's the one crewman who looks like a member of Daft Punk. <laughs> oh, yeah. Like the robot wanted to help him. I'm like, you're from Daft Punk. Is this why the band broke up? One of you got teleported into the future? Probably. And that's why and that's why we can't have another album because we don't deserve nice things. Look, if any French electro band went into the future, it would be them. It would be Daft Punk. I'm looking at my notes. Oh. I want to say, I think... What? Sorry, you saying notes just reminded me. My first note on my pad for this. Space. Oh my god, it's beautiful. Oh. Like, they do very good space. One of my notes here is space, full stop, looks, full stop, beautiful x um comma yeah they Um, they did it they made me actually care about the space of it all like i have some issue with like with the special effects in these shows Hmm. because it does kind of suffer from very kind of very overly busy cg so sometimes it's very hard to kind of get a sense of what's going on which after like years of basically having the same model shot with a few lasers added on and then stop cutting to someone looking at a console going this just happened it's kind of nice to see a big bloody babylon 5 space battle with none of the babylon 5 this was made on an amiga level of charm 
because the, ba- the the space battles of Babylon Five they slap. Yes, they look like I'm playing Elite Dangerous for the PC, but the space battles slap. You can tell this is post Whedon. Mm-hmm. The character dialogue is very much that kind of slightly snarky. We, we've reached that kind of post Whedon in genre television where all the characters are subtly aware that they're on a TV show. So they're all very postmodern and winky wink. Yeah. Which is sometimes my big problem with like Doctor Who, where your main character basically is one Silver Age Superman away from knowing that he's in a TV show. Yeah, I'd say it's a little less insufferable than than some things like uh like Firefly, really. Because there is a level of earnestness, as I was saying with the uh with the start of it. The we're gonna do a Starfleet. Like we are we're, do we're doing good, we're doing science. Like this isn't we're gonna war on some places. Like, yes, it ends up a bit war heavy, but the goal isn't that. The goal is no. is good and interesting. So yeah, it's it's been an entertaining one to watch. It is weird to watch, especially in slow context of watching these other shows, because this is really this is Star Trek as prestige drama yeah like you have a lot of flashbacks in the two parts you generally very you very rarely got flashbacks in any of the trek shows and so it, you're definitely kind of pushing star trek as game of thrones left the expanse kind of this is a big expensive portentous drama which for better or worse i get um it, it sometimes kind of gets in the way of the kind of the, the style and the tone like the klingons like the Klingons are very kind. Like when we have the Klingon scenes, they're all very kind of we all we all speak in these hushed growls, but we're speaking in Klingon and have subtitles, which makes these very long dialogue scenes kind of tedious. Whereas I kind of miss the very sort of cod Shakespearean shouting of TNG and DS9. I really wanted more of that. Definitely these very kind of hushed, portentous whispers. Like this is all very like Star Trek is always kind of campy and silly even when it's being serious, and this is too far on the, we're going to take this really seriously. Yeah, there is a po-faced level to it, and while I've got some issues with season one, that's those episodes' issues. Like, here, this is promising. The only bad side I've found is we've not yet seen the Discovery. We've not yet seen the crew, aside from the few we've seen here in the episode, so it takes a while to get going. But as a whole, I think it was a fun experience. I have a question about the plot for you. Go on. Do you think that Michael intentionally sets the phaser to kill when she shoots Takuvma? Ooh. Because, you know, it's one of those nice phasers which has, like, the blink, which is from, they have it, like, um, it's not as cool as, like, in the Star Trek 09 films where the phaser kind of flips around from sun setting to kill setting physically. But there is a light, there is that nice little sunlight kill light and then when she picks up the phaser it clearly goes from a stun to a kill light and i'm not sure it's like was that an accident or did michael intentionally because of um philippa getting killed intentionally shoot to kill see she was one saying don't martyr to kuvma but at the hmm. same time there is that slight vengeance that slight anger at the Klingons and what they did and I guess knowing their hardy constitution so I think it's one of those ones where it's interesting not knowing whether that was intentional or accidental I think that she did it intentionally but that's just my opinion yeah like in the cold light of day she'd go of course I wouldn't do that yeah because especially since she takes personal responsibility for starting the war. I don't think it's because she accidentally kills the guy. 
in space, I think it's because she intentionally killed the guy who will basically become a martyr. Yeah, it was good fun. It aired in September 2017, and I have some slightly less exciting number one hits. So in the UK, we had Macklemore featuring Skylar Grey's Glorious. Now, I like Macklemore. I have no memory of that song. And then over over in the US, you had uh, Taylor Swift's Look What You Made Me Do, which was from, I guess, what we could call an ambitious album in what it was attempting, but not necessarily great. Is that from the... Is Hang on. That's from Reputation. 1989 was, was good fun, kind of nice. Lover was kind of back to, back to that a bit, and Reputation was her trying to kind of, I don't know, do some different things, try and be not necessarily edgier, because if there's one person with literally zero edges to them, it would be her. I immediately don't know anything. The only one Taylor Swift song I know was Blank's, I actually know and not have just listened to offhand, is Blank Space. And that's because there was once this really good Doctor Who music video about the Peter Capaldi Doctor and Missy set to blank ah. space i'm like okay actually no, not no just the doctor and the master in general and it's like yes please <laughs> i i think initially i i followed todd in the shadows music criticism on youtube yeah. and there were a lot of taylor swift things there and ended up listening to her and going okay my my two musical tastes are like gravelly old Tom Waits fan and basically taste of a teenage girl. So this falls on that side. I admit I'm more Billie Eilish than I am Taylor Swift. Fair enough. Fair enough. Um, so, yeah, the one thing I'm not sure about is where it goes on our big list. Hmm. So, I mean, I have my own estimate my own guess of where i think it would go my thought is fairly confident like a fairly good play here it's still no emissary no. but i think it's probably better than even the charm of the cage like the cage wins a lot of points for that charm but what about you man i really should have thought about this um i know that there are some trekkers out there who will immediately put this on the bottom because michael burnham is a woman and she has words and dialogue and she has stage directions which make because like as we all know if science fiction gives a woman stage directions it's woke propaganda of course and by the way just a reminder if you are that kind of person fuck off this podcast isn't for you get out get out okay so i have to join you mm. or i have to put this as number three like while the cage just you know while in some ways it is much better than the cage hmm. the cage just does have that charm i could come home from work i could put on the cage and have like a late night coffee or like a beer and i could watch the cage okay i'm not gonna come home and put on the vulcan hello and battle of the binary stars which is one of the best episode names for a star trek show episode. oh yeah I'm not going to sit down and watch these two episodes after a rough day at work. That is 100% understandable. I completely see your point there. Like, no. If I was given a television which was tuned to a level where there were literally only two channels, and it was The Cage, and it was The Vulcan Hello slash Battle at the Binary Stars, it would be difficult. Because there are some really good performances. And space, again, is beautiful. It looks beautiful. Like, it's nice to see 
Star Trek with money spent on it. Yeah, yeah, rather than doing its utmost best, more so than other shows at the time, to spare every cent. But yeah, I think The Cage would be a... I could watch that over like a decaf coffee or something late at night and then go to bed and that would be it. I watch Len Nimoy's weird shouty performance because he's clearly trying to work out how TV sets work. Yes. And you know, he's not on a seat on a stage. Well, yeah, and Madril Barrett's really good as number one. And, you know, everyone is good at what they do. You've got the bollock people. Oh, the bollock people. Classic, classic bollock people. Love them. I think that, like, while in some ways it is a two, I am going to want to watch this less than The Cage. Yes. And, like, you know, it really depends on, like, what is your criteria for what ranks a good episode? Is it, like, competence and quality of storytelling and craft? Or is it, eh, like, since this is casual trick, you kind of want to rank this on, like, a casual basis. Because at the same time, you can't compare, like, a 1960s hour of television to, like, a 2017 piece of television in terms of, like, what you can do, what you can achieve. With that kind of a statement, which I 100% agree with, I do realise Picard is going to fare even worse than I thought. <laughs> no, no. But we're not, we're not at the Picard place. So at the moment, as we close out this episode, our number one is still Deep Space Nine's The Emissary. And our worst episode is New Contender, Enterprise, Season 1, Episode 1, Broken Bow. I'm good with this. This is a, a good definitive list. What we're doing next time, we're, we're going to be looking to the favorite antagonists of uh, Star Trek, the Klingons. That's it for us. But if you like what we do, then you're very welcome. Thank you. We will have a Patreon possibly at some point if we've got a sizable amount of listeners, which, you know, just over double figures is enough really for us we're not fussy there'll be a link to our Kofi if you want to just sling us a tip and help subsidize my paramount plus we're british our standards are low yes that's that's all going to be there i might depending on what i decide to do with the big list put a version of it that people can see but not edit otherwise threshold's going to be put up to number <laughs> one i know the fans demand it outside of the show you can find me at Who Dares Rolls, where I talk about independent role-playing games and board games, both on their YouTube channel and on their site. You can buy my comic, Explosion High, at skyshark.itch.io. And you can find me on Twitter, at Charlie underscore EN, where I post about X-Men literally every day. He does. I do. Uh, Miles, what about you? Okay, you can find me on Twitter, at at all lowercase, man miles. It made sense when I made that email address back in 2000, but there we go. I am sticking with it. You can see my either wry commentary on pop culture or just screaming anger at the American English political systems. You know, good casual stuff. Thank you for getting this far. Thank you for enjoying the episode. I hope you enjoyed the episode. If you didn't enjoy the episode, tell us your opinions. We will listen. Unless it's your anger that we made fun of people who, you know, who thinks that Star Trek went woke. Yeah, it was always woke. It was always woke. We, we just weren't paying attention. And with that, I will say good evening 
and go go to a Starfleet. You have been listening to Casual Trek by Charlie Etheridge Nunn and Miles Reed Lobato. The intro theme was by Alfred Etheridge Nunn, Star Trek's owned by Paramount, and Casual Trek is part of the Nerd and Tie Network. <laughs>